This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Italian Prime Minister Matteo Renzi will resign in the wake of the referendum vote Sunday in his country, which saw citizens vote no by a 60 to 40 margin. The vote was for constitutional changes to streamline the government process. But similar anti-establishment sentiment, which is seen in the U.K. and also also here in the United States, cropped up and saw a major miscalculation, much like David Cameron saw in the U.K. months before. To take a look at the vote and its impact, we're joined here in the studio by Brendan O'Leary, professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. And also joining us on the phone is Gemma DePopa, who is a student here at the University of Pennsylvania, but also a native of Italy and good to get her perspective as well. Brendan, great to see you again. Thank you very much, Dan. Good to see you. Thank you, Gemma. Great to have you on the phone with us today. Thanks to you for calling me. Thank you. Uh, Your reaction to the vote, we were talking about this before, maybe not really a big surprise that the vote played out this way. Not a surprise, but the scale of the defeat is a bit stunning. Uh, He deserved this. He stupidly put his own position on the line and said that if you don't back me, I will resign. He didn't need to do that. He designed an absurd referendum which combined five constitutional changes into one single package. He might have got through with, uh, with each one individually separated and if he'd been patient, but he chose not to be. And it's a mistake, as some of the commentators in the press say, to imply that the referendum was on arcane or technical matters. Right. If there had been a, a referendum in the United States to... Uh, uh, return to indirect elections for the Senate and to right. cut it in half in half in size, no one would call that technical or arcane. So um, a, a prime minister who exaggerated his own popularity, a prime minister who was misled in thinking that initial support that he had when he came to power would sustain him through this referendum has been uh, deeply uh, proven wrong. Gemma, what was your reaction and, and also what's uh, been the reaction of, of maybe some of your friends and family that you've talked to in, in the interim? Uh, so we actually all expected uh, a no victory. In this case, the surveys were uh, correct. And uh, I agree with uh, Professor O'Leary. We were actually surprised by the size of uh, the turnout and uh, the number of people voting no. Um, it is also surprising, as he said, that uh, many people actually voted because of the referendum and not only voted uh, against Francie. So hopefully right now what we are all hoping, me and my family, is that um, the transition happens fast, that uh, a new government is nominated quickly, so that uh, no big instability happens. Obviously, Italy has been a, a, a focus on the global stage uh, with uh, how the economy has played out, Gemma, over the last uh, couple of years. But, but as, as your friends and family sit there today, what are the biggest concerns that they have about the government, and also how the economy is, is playing itself out. So in these days, many people have been talking about the banking system uh, as a potential source of instability. Uh, there are eight banks which, according to the Financial Times, are potentially going to be failing uh, after this crisis. Uh, hopefully they won't, but uh, um, the preoccupation was that uh, given that Francie was negotiating the uh, transition to security of this bank, uh, the absence of a government would create a vacuum for which uh, negotiations would stop. So um, this, I think, is uh, one of the big preoccupations. One of the things, uh, to go back to something you said, Brendan, a second ago, is the fact that uh, Mr. Renzi tried to package five different changes into one, 
And it, I guess to a degree, it, it was like trying to fit the square peg in the round hole a little bit, correct? Right. It, if you give uh, in a referendum the opportunity for the public to think that the referendum is uh, about more than uh, what's actually on the ballot paper. And if you then complicate the ballot paper, you're almost guaranteeing a, a recipe for disaster. So the opponents of Renzi were given a gift when he said, back me or, or I'll resign. Uh, they all mobilized, and m many of them are, are populists, but not, yeah. not all of them are populists. So he, he maximized his number of potential enemies. And I do think he could have got some of these changes through, but they were portrayed, and they could be portrayed reasonably as a step too far in the centralization of power and authority in Italy. It is true that I Italy is plagued perhaps by too much, uh, too many veto points in its political system. Right. But if you're going to change it, you need a certain level of consent to get there. He'd got enough support in Parliament, but he didn't have a two-thirds majority in Parliament. So if he'd taken, uh, if he'd un unbundled this package of reforms right. and gone one at a time, I think he might have had a better chance of success. Why do you think he did? I mean, was it was it a bit of ego uh, oh, in the process doing this? Overconfidence, a belief that the centralization of power was necessary to impose certain reforms, the fear that his his government and its popularity were stagnating. He came to power on an agenda which challenged uh, the EU austerity programs yeah. to try and restore some of Italy's autonomy in, in policy making over fiscal policy in particular. So I suspect he feared that time was running out and he had to do it in a quick package. But the fact that that he took this approach in in realistically a short amount of time after what happened to David Cameron it's almost well, like it, 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 it didn't it, even sink in that this was a possibility. It, it had been on the agenda before then. I mean, yeah. he, he should have taken the uh, Cameron's defeat as a signal yeah. and perhaps could have chosen a, a way of retreating at that juncture, but he didn't do so. We're uh, joined here in studio by Brendan O'Leary, a professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, one of the students here at Penn, Gemma DePopa, who's a native of Italy. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Uh, Gemma mentioned the, the banking system, and, and obviously that's a, uh, that's a big concern right now. How much of it a concern is it for you right now with how this has played out in the last 24 hours? Well, the, the markets are slightly calmer than uh, some people had anticipated. Yeah. Nevertheless, there's uh, a very big bank. Uh, Gemma will give you its correct pronunciation in Italian. Uh, it's a, an undergoing recapitalization at this very moment, and yeah. there, are, there are negotiations going on with the Qatar Sovereign Wealth Fund and, and others to try and recapitalize it. Right. If for any reason that were to fail, I think there would then be deep anxieties and questions raised about whether the Italian taxpayer would be on the line to bail out that bank further or whether or not uh, they would seek some orderly resolution of that bank. Uh, this is occurring when the European Union's new banking union is being put into place. Yeah. Uh, arguably, it's not there yet. Uh, under the new procedures, there would be no taxpayer bailouts, no bailouts from the European Central Bank. Instead, the first target would be the senior bondholders and the bondholders in banks. Now, in Italy, it's a, a, a moot point whether people have been prepared for this and indeed whether small uh, um, people with, with small stakes in the banks are, are fully protected from this possibility. Gemma, that 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 bank, which I'll, I'll let you do the honors on in, in naming. Uh, say it again. I'm sorry. 
Monte dei Paschi di Siena. Okay, uh, it, it it is it, it's obviously a big part to what uh, to what uh, Brendan is saying here. But I, I want to take this even a step further off of something Brendan said. The relationship with the EU right now and, and Italy it, it it's been tense from what I've read to say the least. What does this do, do you think, to the relationship with the EU going forward? So indeed, uh, I think the European leaders weren't particularly happy at uh, Renzi's decision to commit this much to this referendum, yeah. especially considering how risky it was. Um, there has been a Eurogroup um, uh, today, and um, they uh, they were, I would say, it, I w- I'm pretty optimistic about it, because they responded that Italy uh, will not stress the euro. So right. I think there is preoccupation, but um, uh, not this far. So I think Italy in general is a pretty um, strongly European country. People uh, don't want to go out of the euro overall. So I'm not really preoccupied from uh, this point of view. But is there that level of concern of, of globalization like has been written over the weekend? Is there that concern in Italy? I think there is that concern, like in uh, every other country, but uh, I think it hasn't been the driver of this no vote, and uh, hopefully it won't be the driver of a vote to go out of the European Union in the future uh, through elections. Cool. Go ahead. The, well, the, the the real danger in Italy is not so much uh, an immediate vote, a, a referendum, or a parliamentary proposal to yeah. leave the European Union. The more destabilizing prospect is that the leading populist movement, the Five Star Movement, is proposing that if it gets into government, it will hold a referendum on the euro. Right. And that will really pose a serious choice for Italian citizens. Most of them actually like the euro compared to the lira, but they don't like the medicine that comes with the euro. <laughs> right. uh, and they don't like the German austerity. And Italy has been stagnant for 20 years. Basically, since it joined the euro, there's been no obvious growth in the Italian economy. So that would be the nightmare scenario for the other Europeans, that uh, the five-star movement comes to power in in some reasonably short interval and proposes a referendum on Italy's membership of the euro. Uh, We had a chance to speak with Mark Blythe of Brown University on Friday, uh, uh, talking about uh, about what could potentially be coming up for uh, for the vote. And obviously, he uh, as well thought that uh, that there probably would be a no vote. Listen to his comments and get your reaction. I think that he's going to lose the vote, and I think this is way more serious than people realize because, and I haven't been able to completely verify this because I haven't seen the document, but I have it from a couple of sources that the Italians have built a bad bank. So here's the problem with Italy, right? They haven't grown in 20 years. Literally, the minute they joined the euro, they stopped growing. I don't know, cause, causation, correlation, you figure it out. Now, all their banks are small, they're reasonably well capitalized, but the economy isn't growing. So the number of non-performing loans in the banks goes up and up and up. Once you get to about 7 8% in the low-growth environment, you've really got a problem. Right. Now, under EU law, you're not allowed to bring the state into this to fix it. No state aid, state is bad, right? The only problem is every banking crisis in human history has been solved by the state. You right. can't get the private actors to do it because they're the ones who are losing their assets. It's a bit like saying, hey, the building's on fire. Why don't you run inside and fix it, right? <laughs> right. It's not going to happen. So realizing <laughs> this, I think it's JP Morgan got together with the Italian government and built a bad bank. And they're taking those NPLs out and they're saying, look, you know, you need 70%, 70 cents on the dollar to make it work. I can get 40. Let's securitize it, sell it on, blah, blah, blah. Clean up the banks and then we can move on from there. 
Well, that, I mean, that's uh, he, he's laying it out right there about the banking system in Italy right now. And I agree that he's laid out uh, one uh, conceivable scenario. The interesting question is whether the bank in question has been a, a deliberately built as a bad bank. To be analogous to what Ireland had to do, it created um, a national asset management agency in mm -hmm. which all of Ireland's non-performing and bad loans were centralised and then later were decomposed and sold off, uh, frequently at a profit. So the question is, can this be done through private sector involvement or will it require the involvement of the Italian government and indeed uh, the Eurozone authorities? I think Mark is quite right that precisely because the Eurozone's Banking union is not yet fully built. Yeah. It's not properly been been tested, and this will be a decisive test. Gemma, what is the expectation there of the people in Italy over the over the short term as to now that this vote has happened? What what do they expect to see happen, and and who are the potential uh, people that we may see as as the the candidates to become prime minister there in in Italy? Yes, that's uh, definitely the topic of discussions on the Italian journals today. So um, the resignation of uh, Matteo Renzi has to be approved by the President of the Republic. So we present him today to the President, and then uh, the President has to decide whether to accept them uh, or uh, to refuse them. And there is a possibility that he will refuse them until the end of the year, because um, uh, the government has to approve the stability law. Um, which is uh, simply the, the low financing all the expenditures of the year uh, in Italy. Uh, the other possibility is that the president decides to nominate immediately another prime minister. And right now, the people who have been uh, mentioned are um, Pier Carlo Padoan, who is uh, the former minister of economy and the former uh, director of the IMF, or uh, Pietro Grasso, who, who was uh, head of the anti-mafia commission. So, so who who uh, is is there a is there a, a uh, one of those two gentlemen that is seen to be better than the other? So uh, right now, people are uh, it looks like people are converging on Padoan, um, and uh, he would represent definitely a figure of stability for the market. I think so. Um, this could be a good solution in the short term uh, to manage the crisis. Brenda? I agree with Gemma. He's he's uh, Renzi's former finance minister. Yeah, and. Together with Renzi, they've both been arguing for a loosening of the extent to which the European Commission uh, oversees the budgets and the fiscal policies of the member states. Yeah. Uh, we're joined here in studio by Brendan O'Leary of the University of Pennsylvania, Professor of Political Science. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Also with us, Gemma DePopa, who is a student here at the University of Pennsylvania and uh, and also a native of Italy, joining us as well. One of the other things to discuss also uh, is not only do we have this playing out uh, in Italy, but also uh, in the U.K., uh, you have the case going to the Supreme Court there today uh, regarding the Brexit and, and that moving forward. So that's that's another kind of interesting piece to this whole process. It, it is indeed, Dan. And over the next week, uh, the UK Supreme Court is going to be hearing commissions from the government, which is appealing uh, the decision of a lower court. But it's also going to be hearing submissions from those who want to uh, block uh, UK exit or Brexit, as it's sometimes called. So what's at stake here is very simple. 
one constitution, the old constitution, very clearly says that parliament is sovereign. Right. And I would be astonished if the court doesn't find the government guilty of breaking that constitution and slapping its bottom and saying uh, you have to consult parliament before you invoke Article 50, right. uh, which would involve uh, leaving the, the European Union after two years of negotiations. But the much more interesting question is that it is being put before the court to assess whether there is in fact a new UK constitution. Since the 1990s, both Scotland and Northern Ireland have acquired special uh, devolved powers. In the case of Northern Ireland, that's linked to a treaty with the Irish Republic. Mm -hmm. And the UK has passed what's known as the Sewell Convention. And under this convention, the Westminster government does not legislate if it's going to affect the powers of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland right. without seeking a legislative consent motion in each of those um, devolved entities. So if the court were to say, yes, Westminster must first uh, follow its own convention and consult the Scottish Parliament and the Northern Ireland Assembly and the Welsh Assembly, that would completely put the kibosh on Theresa May's plans to trigger uh, her exit negotiations in March. So, you're, I mean, it, it seems like that that's, that has a good possibility of happening, correct? It's, it's certainly conceivable. So uh, I think it's a no-brainer that the government is going to be found guilty of uh, violating the old constitution. Yeah, right. What we don't know, the 11 Supreme Court justices are going to spend some time over this over the vacation. What we don't know is whether they're going to be found guilty of violating the new constitution. And what's at stake here is important because there will be Northern Irish and Scottish uh, judges inside that 11-member sure. Supreme Court. Right. And some of them have made statements in the past which clearly recognise the new constitutional order. So we're, we're basically seeing a debate over whether the UK is Greater England or whether it's a union of equal peoples. And uh, as your listeners will know, Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to remain. Yeah. So why should they be dragged out of the European Union against their will if they're equal units of the United Kingdom? So then if, the, if, if they are, are found to have broke uh, both of those, then obviously the March date gets, uh, gets shelved, and then the next process right. is what? Well, what would happen then is that the uh, London government would seek a legislative, if it, if it obeyed the court, which I would expect that it would do, right. uh, it would seek a legislative consent motion in the Scottish Parliament, which it wouldn't get. Right. And it would get it would seek a legislative uh, consent motion in the Northern Ireland Assembly and in the Welsh Assembly. It wouldn't get one in Northern Ireland. It might get one in Wales. Okay. That would delay it. And it could then legislate having followed its own rules, namely it, it did try to get a legislative consent motion. Right. And then I think the courts would allow them to go ahead. So at, at the very least, it's going to put a spanner in the works. But it could also create a very interesting possibility. If Mrs. May is thinking, and she obviously has to think, I, I don't know how she sleeps, but but if she if she is thinking, then the easiest path to go down is to keep the UK in the single market. Yeah. That would satisfy the Scots because it would mean that they kept all of their European benefits uh, and rights. Um, and um, all that would happen is that the UK would no longer have voting powers over legislation affecting the single market. 
If she did that for Northern Ireland as well, then there would be no issue with the Irish government because there would be no possibility of the revival of a border across the island of Ireland. Right. So it's possible that these court cases could push her into recognising that the single market is the easiest way to go. Because although people did vote in a referendum, they only voted on a question about remaining or leave. They did not vote on the pattern of leaving. (laughs) And and that's, of course, the really complicated question. (laughs) The the devil in the details right there. Exactly. Uh, This is also part of what should be an amazing year politically across Europe. Uh, Obviously, what's going on in the UK, what's going on in Italy right now, what went on in Austria as well uh, over the last few days. And then you have a variety of different uh, politicians coming up for vote as well, uh, including in Germany, which could be uh, could be the greatest thing to watch going forward. Well, bo- both Germany and France have elections uh, next year. Yeah. It's very clear that Marine Le Pen of the National Front um, uh, uh, an un, uh, undoubted opponent of the, the European Union, she's going to get into the second round. Yeah. And the question is, who will she face and will she be defeated? Um, it's very likely that Francois Fillon, the, the uh, candidate who just won the election, uh, the primary elections for the Republican Party, it's very likely, I think, that he could defeat her. Uh, and I think it's also likely that uh, any plausible new socialist candidate might have a chance because Francois Hollande uh, departed the scene. He had 4% <laughs> approval ratings. He, he he actually looked at his approval ratings and decided that the better part of valour was, was not to run again. So I, I think there's a, a decent chance that Le Pen will not uh, win the French presidential elections. Germany, I think what we'll see there is a rise in support for populism, the alternative for Deutschland. Yeah. But what that will uh, paradoxically do, in my view, is increase the power of the centre-left in Germany because there's already a grand coalition between Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats. And what this will do is reduce the size of the Christian Democrats and put them uh, into a grand coalition, more firmly uh, a grand coalition in which the Social Democrats have some influence. And then they'll have to look at themselves and say, well, what's our responsibility for the mess that exists in the Eurozone and in the European Union? Do we have to change track if we want both the Eurozone and the European Union to survive? But as as Germany is an entity itself, for the most part, Germany is is doing exceptionally well right now. Indeed, that partly explains the complacency of Germany. Germany does very well out of the competitive uh, level of the euro against other currencies. It's yeah. very good for German export markets. But there are other features of the union, including Mrs. Merkel's own behavior, which are causing intense uh, anxiety in, in Germany, uh, particularly to do with her decision to allow one million refugees into the country. And that was, uh, uh, by some measures, uh, a brave measure, courageous, by others, uh, unconstitutional and uh, done without uh, the least degree of proper preparation. So Germany has lots of questions to address. And uh, even its public um, is, to some extent, doubtful about some of the policies uh, pursued domestically, right. not not in regard to other European countries. Germany Germans are famously anxious about lending any money to southern Mediterraneans <laughs> yeah. um, and having an Italian in charge of the European Central Bank. But 
even domestically, German growth hasn't been terrific and uh, not everybody has prospered under a period of um, s- significant but not not extensive economic growth in Germany. Gemma, where are the areas of growth that, when you think about Italy right now, where are the areas of growth that, that really should be focused on? I think what um, we have been discussing about for years has been uh, investing in innovation and uh, education, which uh, in Italy has been uh, a voice in the expenditure which has been cut over time. Right, right. <laughs> and... Um, Definitely, um, Italy is composed of small firms, so uh, measures to increase the competitiveness of uh, small family-led firms uh, are definitely needed. Uh, And then a huge amount of reforms, which were started by the Renzi government, uh, and which are needed to increase the competitiveness of the country and uh, to fasten the processes in Italy, the trials, the bureaucratic processes. All those are definitely necessary for growth to finally start after 20 years. How much of that investment uh, can can occur from within Italy, and how much of it may need to come from outside of Italy, maybe through uh, through public-private partnerships? Um, I'm sure that uh, both things are needed, uh, right. but um, there needs to be uh, some obstacle removed for foreign air investors to be interested in Italy, I think. How, how closely are, uh, are people there in Italy, well, obviously they're focused on what happened over the weekend, but I would think uh, there are people at, at other levels of, of government that are also keeping an eye on what's going on in other places around Europe right now. Um, yes, I'm, I'm sure about it. Um, I don't know. Professor, do you, what do you think about it? About the... Uh, if, if, if Italy is really... If people within Italy and the government of Italy are keeping an eye on what's going on in other portions of, uh, of Europe with all of these different incidents with the Brexit and, and potentially the votes in France and Germany and what happened in Austria as well. I think they're aware of it, but, but people should think of Europe as a collection of nation states. So yeah. politics is, is primarily domestic with the European stage, a stage on which you project and you, you separately meet uh, fellow elites. What is clear is that the Italian political class knows that its economic policy making is now deeply constrained by European policy. They have the mother and father of a banking crisis emerging in front of them. How are they going to cope with that? How are they going to interact with Europe to solve that in a credible fashion? They know that that's their agenda. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.